So chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered again, And if they do not believe me, you ding-dong, he just said that they would believe you, but Pharaoh would not. You already have the answer to your question. It's like the only stupid question is the one I've already answered. If they do not pay attention to me, but say, Yahweh has not appeared to you. Now that one's kind of understandable. How do they know that I'm not coming out of the wilderness after high on drugs and hallucinated? So the Lord has not appeared to you. So Yahweh responds and says, what is it in your hand? And he said, a staff. Now a staff is a symbol of authority and rule in the ancient world. Shepherds would keep them in order to rule over their sheep and to defend off the wolves or bears or lions that attacked you. Even Pharaoh himself carried a rod and a shepherd's staff in his hand to represent his authority. And when we Genesis 49 says, Judah, the scepter and the rod will not depart from your hand until it comes to the one who belongs because you are a king and a lion over all the tribes. So the, this staff, this shepherd's staff, is a symbol of power and authority. Now notice, remember, Moses is just a shepherd over his father-in-law's flock. God comes to Moses and says, what's that in your hand? Well, it's my authority, but it's technically borrowed from my father-in-law. And God is going to seize that staff and basically say, now it's my staff. And this staff is going to become the symbol of Yahweh's power. And by the fact of letting Moses carry the staff means that Moses is going to become his representative. So Moses has gone from inheriting the sheep of his father-in-law to now becoming the representative of the sovereign God of the universe. That's a huge promotion. And so this staff is no longer Moses' staff. In fact, when we get to the plagues, it'll be called the staff of Yahweh. So that every single time you see it strike the Nile or wave over creation to bring the locusts, you're reminded that this is the hand of God, not the hand of Moses. Because Moses is just carrying the staff for God, like your caddy, carrying your golf clubs. Okay, And so he's going to wield it on God's behalf. So with these three, redemption, he's going to claim Moses' staff as his own. And Moses is going to become the image of God as a staff bearer. And so the first thing he says is this. What is in your hand? He says, staff. And Yahweh said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses ran from it because that's what every intelligent person does. Okay. <laughs> now, this isn't like a rat snake in Columbus or a milk snake. This is a viper. And vipers are venomous. And um, they're venomous, not poisonous. My mother-in-law was over at my house a while and um, she said the snake was poisonous. And my daughter's like, no. They're venomous. <laughs> She's like, where did you learn that? She's like, Wild Kratz, which is this cartoon about nature. <laughs> so, so snakes are venomous. In the Middle East, every snake is practically venomous. And if it strikes you, you're dead. Okay, you're dead. Even with modern-day medicine, you're going to be in a lot of pain, and there's still a good chance that you're going to die with those kind over there. So he runs and scares them. And then God says, grab it by the tail. <laughs> like it's like a rat snake or something. And so he put it on his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This is the third time he's repeated that phrase. Now, you must understand something. The last time we saw a serpent was the garden. And it was tempting Adam and Eve. 
It was a symbol of chaos and rebellion. And God is now taking the serpent and making it a symbol. And you're like, what's up? And all throughout the Bible, the serpent is a symbol of chaos, chaos, destruction. In every religion, the serpent is a symbol of chaos. Sometimes it plays double duty, wisdom and chaos, which never made sense to me. And God is claiming his own. Why? Because the staff represents authority and the serpent represents chaos. By taking the staff and turning it into chaos and then bringing it back into order again, God is showing that he has the power over chaos. One of the only ways that you can show that you're God is by your ability to do chaos. Think about it. Even today, what is the one thing that with all of our technology and all of our power, we cannot control? Chaos. Okay? We spend billions of dollars and tons of our time every day trying to bring order to things and control things that we can't control or thinking that we can control them because that's what we fear the most, chaos and death, and then taxes. But chaos and death, okay? And so the first thing that God did was he came to the formless and empty creation that had darkness, which is chaos because you can't see anything in darkness, and it was a watery, raging chaos sea. And the first thing God does is sends his spirit over the water and it turns into a calm, placid water. And then he brings light and then he forms and fills. And so by that, he's showing that I control chaos. And therefore, whoever controls chaos controls everything. And so what God is doing is he's taking this into chaos and bringing it back and saying, Ray, the sun god, battles Apophis every day. Apophis is this great serpent that chases Ray through the sky. Ray is on a cloud, a chariot, and he shines his sunlight down on creation. And he spends the whole day shining it down as he moves through the sky. And then by the end of the day, the Apophis, the great dark sea serpent of creation, has caught up with him. So he has to turn his sunlight towards Apophis, and the earth turns dark. That's why there's night, because now it's on Apophis. And he battles Apophis the entire night. And he never defeats Apophis. He just drives Apophis back far enough that he can put his light back on creation for another 10 hours until or 12 until Apophis catches up again. And every single day, Ray, the most powerful god in all of Egypt, battles a serpent and only can drive him back and the world has to be in darkness the entire time he's battling Apophis. And every night Apophis returns. And God takes the staff, serpent, back again like that. That's his power. That's his control. And not only that, what is interesting, the very thing that they feared the most, Apophis swallowing Ray, the serpent also is a symbol on the crown of Pharaoh as a symbol of protection which is totally contradictory. Sometimes I just wonder if Satan's like, let's see if we can get these people to believe in two contradictory statements. And so God is taking the symbol of protection and showing that he controls it, which is also a symbol of chaos and shows that he controls it. And there's no epic cosmic battle and there's no like long hours of darkness while you wait for him to drive it back. It's just boom, boom. If that doesn't speak to you, will they believe me? Heck yeah. And so then the next sign is leprosy. Now, this isn't actually leprosy. 
have to realize that pretty much every single time in the Bible that it says leprosy, it's not leprosy. Um, leprosy is not even the right word. The English translation is lepra, and lepra in Hebrew doesn't even mean leprosy. It just kind of sounded like it. That's like S-U-N is the big ball of fire, and S-O-N is what you give birth to. And it's like, you don't want to confuse those two things. Okay, just because they sound the same doesn't mean they're the same. Just because it sounds like lepra doesn't mean it's leprosy. And so that was an early mistake that a lot of translators make, but it's kind of stuck. Leprosy, the word here, just basically means skin disease. And it can refer to all kinds of skin diseases. And we get to Leviticus, and we're going to spend a long time on skin diseases and discharges. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) It's using leprosy. In fact, a lot of translations now don't even use the word leprosy. But the point is not leprosy. The point is that his skin is being attacked and it's now dying and it's full of disease. But then God turns it back healthy again. The whole point is that God controls sickness and health too. And he can heal like that and he can strike it. And the Egyptian gods were often associated with sickness and plagues because that's how you judge people. And even God uses plagues to judge people. And so he controls nature. And what that's the other thing that we fear the most. There's a lot of diseases that we don't know how to cure. And they bring chaos in our life. And God's there and back again. And the next one is, and what's interesting is he'll never use that sign that we know of. That sign never gets repeated when he gets to Egypt. The second one. And then the third one is the water into blood. Now, this may not exactly be blood. It may just be some kind of contamination or poison in the water. We'll talk about that when we get to the first uh, one. But the idea is, once again, I control creation. I control the Nile. Water is gold in the ancient world. Water is life. I mean, you and I, we just like spray water everywhere and don't even think about it. But in the ancient world, you do not waste water. Okay, spitting on the ground is like a waste. People, okay, because they live in a desert culture where rains come very little and water is worshipped. One of the greatest gods that they worship other than Ray is the Nile. And it's ruled by a guy by the name of Happy. H-A-P-I, happy. And so we'll talk about him a lot more when we get to that. So God gives them these three signs basically saying, okay, I told you that they would believe me, but if this makes you feel better, here's three signs. But these are all demonstration of power over creation. Verse 10, Then Moses said to Yahweh, Oh my Lord, I am not an eloquent man, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean he has a speech impediment or a stutter, like a lot of people think. It just means, like, I'm not a good speaker. I don't want to speak. It's a polite way of saying, I don't want to go. Remember, everybody just, like, circumvents the real thing. That's the polite thing. You don't ever say, I don't want to do it. You just kind of, like, oh, i got to wash my hair tonight. That's what he's doing here, okay? So he's not exactly saying, I got a speech impediment. He's just saying, I'm not a good speaker, which basically means I don't want to speak. I don't want to do this. At this point, this is when Yahweh's patience starts coming to him, and he's kind of like, oh, okay? And he says, Yahweh said to him, who gave you a mouth to man? Or who makes a person mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? So now go, and I will be with your I will be your mouth, and we will teach you what the must say. So he's kind of getting angry here. 
that the grammar here starts getting a little bit elevated. Now, once again, this isn't God saying, I make people blind and I make people deaf and mute, which he does and he can. He has every right to do that. But he's not saying I'm the inflictor of handicaps. The point is that I can do anything. I'm the one that created everybody. I'm the one that gives everybody the ability to do things. So I can take it away. I can give you, I can redesign anybody in any way that I want because I am God. That's all he's basically saying. Kind of like, I brought you into this world, I can take you out, but you don't really mean that. Although sometimes God does. But Moses said, and now we're no longer circumventing. Please, Lord, send anyone else whom you wish to send. I'm not going. And it's at this point that God says, Yahweh became angry with Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak very well. Moreover, he's coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now, he, this is what's so cool about God. I already knew way before this event that you were already going to say that you're not going to go, so Aaron's already on his way. <laughs> now, like, before I even gave you the chance to say, I don't want to work for you, I've already hired somebody else. Okay? But here's the thing. God says, you're still going. Even if I have to drag you kicking and screaming into Egypt, you're going. See, sometimes God gives you free will, and sometimes he says, I'm God, because he has better plans. Now, here's what's interesting. This is the other thing the movie got wrong. Moses has been demoted. He is now the sidekick of Aaron. Aaron's going to carry the staff now. Aaron is going to speak to Moses. When you read in the plagues, it's not Moses speaking. It's not Moses with the staff. Sometimes he's carrying the staff, but it's always Aaron speaking. He goes to Pharaoh. He speaks. And Moses stands by his side. Because Moses has been demoted. He still has to go because God wants to teach Moses something. But he doesn't get to be the representative anymore because he doesn't have faith. And though God will still use you and still take you there, he will not use you in the way that he wants to if you have no faith. He can't use people without faith. And so this is what happens. But here's also what's interesting. Somewhere around plague seven, Moses begins to be the speaker. And he begins to carry the staff. And Aaron is no longer mentioned anymore. Because as Moses begins to see plague after plague after plague, he begins to move from unbelief to belief. And this is what's so cool about God. God is the God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and upteenth chances. You're never, ever, ever completely fired with God. The minute you come here, yeah, the minute you begin to show faith, God is ready to restore you because he's a covenantal God who will always pursue you because that's his character. And so Moses has been demoted, but as Moses begins to grow in faith and he begins to trust in God, and he begins to be wowed by God, then God begins to restore him. And then, by the time we get to the Exodus, and they're standing at the Red Sea, and all of Israel is like, oh no, we're all going to die. He says, fear not, and watch what your God will do. He has no idea what Yahweh is going to do. But he knows Yahweh is going to do something, because that's what he's done the last ten times. 
And that is the Charlton Heston Moses. But here's the thing, he didn't start off that way. And this is the encouraging part. When you feel like, I don't have enough faith, or God can never use me, or I, the, the, you're still probably way better off than Moses. Because at least you've accepted Christ, and at least you're trying to know him. Moses is not even there yet. And yet God is going to take Moses, this guy who doesn't know God, and had the audacity to say, where have you been for 400 years? And even had the audacity to say, I'm not going. You send somebody else. You don't say that to the God of the universe. And yet God grows him into the greatest prophet the world has ever seen. And if he can do that with Moses, then imagine what he can do with you with the Holy Spirit and the faith that you had when you first came to him. Because you're already starting off way further ahead than Moses ever did. This is the message of the Bible, because this is what Moses is going to learn. God uses us despite how wicked and evil and failing that we are all the time. One of the predominant messages of the entire Bible is, you're a failure, you'll never be able to save anybody, you'll never ever be able to build a good enough government to do anything, you'll never be a good parent, because you're an absolute failure who constantly rebels against God all the time. That's who you are. That's Genesis 3 through 11. That's Romans 1 and 2. But the second message of the Bible that you kept seeing is God uses you anyways because he wants to redeem you and he can change you into an incredible parent, an incredible leader, an incredible teacher, and he will use you to redeem other people even though you're still a sinner. And those are the two most dominant messages in the Bible. You can't do it on your own and you're evil to the core, but God will pursue you and make a covenant with you and change you and redeem you and use you despite your nature. Because that's what he created you to be in the garden. And that's what he will move heaven and earth to get you back to. That's the message of the Bible. That's the gospel presentation. And you do yourself a disservice when you think, I'm good at this, or I can do this, or I can do this on my own. Because the most important thing you need to realize is, until you understand how dark your soul really is, and how evil you really are, you will never really truly cling to and depend on and desperately want Christ. The more that you think, I'm that, and I'm this, and I can do it, the less you'll cling to him and the less you'll experience him. The amazing Christian is not the one who's amazing, but the one who realizes how evil and how dark and how desperate they are for the God of the universe, and so they cling to him more than everybody else, and therefore they become greater than everybody else in the way that God uses them in the kingdom. And that's Moses. You know he's got a healthy dose of humility if this is the way he starts. And that's why he's going to become the most powerful person, because every time you see Moses from this point on after about plague seven, he's going to always go to God. The minute the people complain, the minute he just immediately turns to God and says, God, help me. God, you've got to do this. God, you've got to deal with that. And that's what makes Moses great. And here's what's interesting. Even though God put him in the right places with the right education, in the long run, God didn't really need any of that. He didn't need any of that. And that's the message of the Bible. And that's why Romans starts with, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. <laughs> and then says, thank God for Jesus Christ. And then he begins with Abraham. 
and begins to take you through redemption. The problem in America is when we say, well, I don't really struggle with those sins. I just kind of overeat sometimes. No, call it what it is. You're really obsessed with how you look before other people, and all you can think about is what you want this more than the call sin for what it really is. But we get it's a disorder, it's that disorder. No, it isn't. It's selfish sin and lust. That's what it is. It's control. It's not a gossip problem. It's you controlling other people's lives in order to make yourself more powerful and more like. That's what it is. That's what it really is. But the minute we give it these labels that sound culturally acceptable and it's just a struggle, we begin to reduce who we really are and how much we need Christ. And that's what God is exposing in Moses here. Part of this is Moses has to screw up and fail so that God can use him. So God can use him. It stinks to look yourself in the mirror, but it is the most important thing you've got to do in order to grow. Any questions? So you are to speak, verse 15, to him and put the words in his mouth. And as for me, I will be with you with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what you must do. He will speak for you, for you to the people, and it will be as if he were your mouth. And as for you, you were his God. You will also take him in the hand, in his hand, this staff, which you will do the signs. So notice he says, I will speak to you and you speak to Aaron and Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. But what's interesting is despite that demotion, he still says, and you will be a God to Pharaoh and Aaron. Now God is not saying ontologically you're going to become a God, but he's saying you're going to be as God to them because you're going to be the mouth of God. Every word that comes out of your mouth when you have that staff, it's going to be as if I'm talking. And anybody who then goes against what you say is as if they're going against me. And so that's, think about it. we 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 understand ambassadorship, but not like the ancient world. So if like um, Trump sends an ambassador to Russia, and Russia just like mistreats the ambassador and kicks them out, that would be as if you're doing it to Trump. In fact, when David sends ambassadors to the Philistines and the Philistines cut a hole out of the rear end of the clothes and shaves half their beard off, which is very disrespectful in the ancient world, and sends them back, David says, how could he do this to me? He humiliated me. He mutilated me. And they're like, no, he didn't, David. did." But that's how they see representatives. You are me, and you're speaking on my behalf. And that's what God is saying. You are going to be the physical incarnation of God to them. Not literally in a Jesus sense, but in a representative sense. You're going to be my image. And so this is what God is saying to him. 